Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? All right. Nice. Very good. We have one person who's really good. Everyone else is pretty good. All right. We'll see what we can do with that over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, I'd like to combine our last two sermon series in order to make an invitation today. You may remember the sermon series immediately before this uh, was about the Bible and how we meet with God in His Word. And this sermon series is about work. I'd love to merge those two things together and invite you to core discipleship. Core discipleship is a place where we come and we do some work in order to know God better and know Him deeper in His Word. And it starts uh, 16 days from right now. We'll be in this room on Tuesday night. We'd love to invite you to come and be a part of that. You can sign up for that and find out more about it on our website or on the app as well. Uh, Pastor Kenny and I lead that, and we'd love to have you join us. This sermon series is called Work as Worship, and we are looking at what God has designed our work to be. And you may remember the first week, we saw some foundational elements of what God has made work to be all about. Uh, we saw that God Himself is a worker. It's a part of His nature to work. And because He's made us to be in His image, we were designed to work. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes... I don't feel like working, right? Am I the only one? Uh, this week when I was out doing yard work for a few hours and then I came in and I sat down on the couch, I said, oh, this is nice. I'm pro couch. This is great. Why? If God designed me to be a worker, then why was I so excited to get to that couch that day? Well, the answer to that comes in Genesis chapter 3, where we see that because of sin, work doesn't function the way that God designed it to. We're broken, the creation around us is broken, and so now because of sin, work is hard. Work is painful. We get sore while we work. Our work is frustrating. It isn't always successful. But the good news we saw in that first week is God is redeeming us. He's making us new. He's making the creation new. And one day, we will dwell in a new heaven and a new earth where all of our work is the way that God originally designed it to be. All of our work is successful. All of our work is blessed. All of our work is invigorating and exciting and gives glory to God and does good for others. Right? It's hard to imagine that in our broken state. But that is precisely what God is making us for. He's remaking the creation and he's renewing us so that our work will be renewed and it will be nothing but blessing as we experience it in the new heaven and the new earth. But friends, as I read the Bible, God's salvation isn't just for heaven one day. Yes, ultimately, the culmination of us being made new is saved for heaven. But God's Spirit comes to dwell in us, and He begins to transform us, and we are being made new day in and day out as His followers, aren't we? Yeah, we are. And because of that, we want to look and see how God is redeeming or making our work new, not only one day in heaven, but right now. How does He want us to work as new people in Christ Jesus day in and day out? I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to camp out in verses 24 through 32. 
Ephesians 4, 24 through 32 is where we're going to spend our time. And the reason we're going there is because in Ephesians 4, Paul's telling the, the church at Ephesus that they need to live into their new life in Christ. He, he says, don't, don't live the way of the world. Don't live the way of your old self. Instead, you're in Christ. And so day in and day out, live into that new life in Christ. Ephesians 4, 24, he says, and to put on the new self, repeatedly, to regularly put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Christ Jesus, we have a new self, and the new self is completely different than the old self. And what is the new self like? The new self is like God in character. Isn't that what it says there? Righteous and holy. And we're called to that new self living day in and day out in every aspect of our life. Not, not just in our church life, and then we get to do whatever we want at work. No, we are called to that new self, to be that new self in every aspect of our life, in our marriages, in our families, uh, in our neighborhoods, with our friends, yes, at church, and absolutely in our work. We are called to be the new people that Christ has made us day in and day out. What does that look like? In very practical, very specific ways, what does it look like to live out our new life in Christ day in, day out, and in the workplace? Well, the rest of Ephesians 4 is going to give us five very specific and very practical ways for us to live out the new life in Christ in our workplace, and it starts with this, be honest. How do we live out the life of Christ in our workplace? How do we put on the new self in our workplace? Be honest. Verse 25 starts with the word, therefore. What is it connecting? It's connecting the new life in Christ to this subject. What's that subject? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Because we want to live out the new life in Christ, what do we do? We put away lies and falsehood, and we live out honesty and truth. That's the new life in Christ. Lying is pervasive in our culture. Are we surprised at this point when a public figure is caught lying? When we find out a politician has lied to us, is that shocking? No, it's shocking when they tell the truth, right? When, when we find out the media has lied to us, or a celebrity has lied to us, or a sports figure has lied to us, are those things surprising to us anymore? Absolutely not. We live in a culture that is pervasive. Lying is pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's true that it is filled, the workplace is filled with lies and deceit. Our workplace is a place where falsehood is regularly practiced. I'm reminded of the old story about an owner who heard his clerk say, no, no ma'am, we haven't had any for a while and it doesn't look as if we'll be getting any soon. Horrified, the owner came running out to the customer and said, of course we'll have some soon. We placed an order last week. It will be here any time. Then the owner drew the clerk aside and said, never, never, he snarled. Never, never, never say we're out of anything. Say that we've just placed an order and it should be here any time. Now, what is it that she wanted? Rain, said the clerk. 
rain, said the clerk. I'll give you a minute. Lying takes place in the workplace in order to cover. Oh, I was supposed to make that phone call. Yes, I said I'd do that two days ago. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I did it, absolutely. And then we run back to the office to make the phone call as fast as we can. Right, lying takes place when we're supposed to have a project done. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Right, we haven't thought about it in two weeks, but it's almost done. Okay, I should probably start that now. Right, lying takes place in the workplace in order to keep up keep up with other businesses. My wife had to confront this in a coworker just this last week who wanted to lie to a client in order to keep them. And she said, no, that is not how we work here. Lying takes place in the workplace to keep up with our coworkers. Wait, if, if they're lying about these things, exaggerating these things, then maybe I need to in order to keep up. When everything around us is filled with lies, it's tempting for us to lie in order to keep up. Even as followers of Jesus, it's tempting, tempting to lie in order to keep up. 25 years ago, I used to play golf regularly with a guy who somehow seemed to lose 10 to 15 shots per round off of his score. I mean, he, he would, on almost every hole, shoot a six and record a five, or shoot a seven and record a six. I felt like I was beating him hole after hole after hole, and we would get to the end, and he would have beaten me by five shots. And I would say, how is this happening? Right? And, and, and the answer was, he wasn't being honest in what he was doing. And it was so very tempting to start to reduce my own score in order to try and keep pace. And that is tempting for us. In this world, in the workplace, we're tempted in order to lie like others in order to keep pace. But as followers of Jesus, when we go to work, Keeping up with others, that, that's, not our, that's not our aim. Even keeping our job isn't our aim. Right? Becoming like Jesus in character, glorifying him, that's our aim at work. And so we're not people of lies because Jesus is what? The truth. And so we're not about falsehood, we're about the truth. Jesus says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to you and he will lead you into all what? Truth. And so we're people of truth and honesty, and that's how we reflect the new us who is in Christ Jesus in our workplace day in and day out. But it's not the only way. This passage also says, oh, yeah, let me, let me read this quote to you, sorry. About 1,700 years ago, one of the early church fathers, a guy named Jerome, said this about lying in order to emphasize how important it is for us. He said, Lying is indeed an accursed vice. We're men and we have relations with one another only by speech. If we recognize the horror and gravity of an untruth, we should more justifiably punish it with fire than any other crime. I commonly find people taking the most ill-advised pains to correct their children for their harmless faults and worrying them about heedless acts which leave no trace and have no consequences. He says, Lying is, in my opinion, the only fault whose birth and progress we should consistently oppose. It grows with the child's growth, and once the tongue has got the knack of lying, it's difficult to imagine how impossible it is to correct it. There is nothing more important than us being people of the truth in our workplace when everyone else is fudging numbers, when everyone else is shading their accomplishments. We're to be people who are constantly honest because that's what God has called us to. 
That's how we reflect the new us in the workplace. The second way that this passage teaches us to be the new us in Christ in the workplace is to resolve anger appropriately. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. As we've seen before, being angry isn't a sin. Jesus was angry, Luke 3. God is said to be angry. If we go through this world with a number of people who are rebelling against their maker and mistreating their fellow human beings and we don't get angry, then we're not paying attention to what's going on around us. God doesn't call Christians to not be angry. He says, no, no, when you're angry, don't sin in that anger. Don't sin in that anger. You ever get angry in your work? Anyone ever get angry or frustrated by the work itself? Anyone ever get angry or frustrated with their boss? Right? We got any friendship employees in here? Anyone ever get angry or frustrated who is a boss with your workers? Anyone ever get angry or frustrated with their co I can't believe they did this. Frustrated and angry with your coworkers? What's the primary way that we sin when we're angry? I think it's with our words. Right? Very rarely do we punch other people in the workplace. Primarily, the way that we take our anger and frustration and turn it into sin is through our words. Sometimes it's by blowing up at others. Uh, we get angry with someone else, and rather than exercising the fruit of the Spirit like patience and gentleness, we give what the Proverbs calls full vent to our anger, and we sin against them. More commonly, we sin in our anger by gossiping about the person that we're angry and frustrated with by talking about them negatively behind their back. Can you believe our boss? Right? Can you believe that decision that they made? My dog could make better decisions than this. Right? Bosses get together and they talk about their, can you believe that person that works for us? Right? Our dogs could do better work than what they're doing. Our coworkers, we express frustration. I talk about them behind their back. Sometimes we combine gossip with the Old Testament sins of Israel of complaining and grumbling, right? Remember Israel, constant complaining, constant grumbling. God didn't want to put up with it. And we're told in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, this is something that is different about those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The world is filled with people who handle their anger and frustration through grumbling, complaining, and gossiping. And God says, my people are different than that. They live new lives in Christ Jesus, free from grumbling and complaining and gossiping. Instead, they handle their anger and frustration in righteous ways. Right? What are righteous ways we handle our anger and frustration? Well, Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 seem to indicate we do so by having direct conversations rather than talking about other people in negative ways. Galatians chapter 6.1 seems to indicate that we handle anger righteously when we speak to other people in gentleness. Right? That, that kind of gentle directness is what God calls us to, to be Christ-like when we handle our anger. We're, we're not to be those of the world who handle it in gossip, complaining, grumbling, giving full vent to our anger. 
but in a gentle directness with those that we're frustrated with. How, how do we live out the new life of Christ in our workplace? We resolve anger appropriately. The third of the five things that we see is that we reflect the new life in Christ by working hard. We work hard in our workplace. Look, look at the next verse in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now that idea of going to work with the motivation of having things that you can share with those in need, that's going to be a primary, uh, primary teaching next week. This week, I want us to focus on the idea of not stealing but doing an honest day's work. How do people primarily steal from their workplace? Well, I suppose there might be fudging of expense reports. Maybe people steal work supplies. Maybe you have thousands of paper clips from work at home. You use them in order to build things or make pictures. I don't know. But isn't the primary way that people steal from their work theft of time? Isn't that the primary way? Somebody works this much, but they record this much? Or someone is getting paid to work, and they're doing things that aren't work during that time? In a recent Forbes survey, 83% of American workers said that they spend time on websites unrelated to their work every day during work time. Moreover, over half of that 83% say that they spend at least an hour on websites that are not related to their work during work time, shopping on Amazon, updating their social media, etc. Right? As believers, we want to be people who do an honest and good day's work when our employer is paying us to work. Now, please don't hear me say, you should become a workaholic. You should ignore worship of the Lord and, and, and put your family below your work. That is not what I am saying here. But what I am saying is Christians should be known as the people who put in an honest and good day's work when their employer is paying them. It is a way that we reflect Christ in our workplace by not stealing from our employer, but doing an honest day's work like we're getting paid for. I, I love the way that Martin Luther King Jr. put this in a sermon as he was talking about the importance of Christians doing a good day's work when they're getting paid. He says this, If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep, street, sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep the streets so well that all of the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, Here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Right? Amen. Right? God calls his people to not steal, but to put in a good and hard day's work. We reflect Jesus in the way that we work within our job. The fourth way that we live out the new life in Christ in the workplace is this. Speak encouraging words. Speak encouraging words. Look at the next two verses. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, then it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve God's Holy Spirit by speaking words that tear away at other people instead of words that build other people up. The word for corrupting here 
means to disease. We can actually disease or damage another person's mind and soul through the words that we speak. And the person who has new life in Christ doesn't use their words that way. Instead, they use their words to encourage, build up, share God's grace with others. Right? That, that's what we're called to, to be those who speak encouraging words. One time when my kids were much smaller, we had a Saturday where we were running a whole lot of errands as a family. And one of my kids, who will remain nameless, was not particularly excited about all of the errands that we were running on this Saturday and was rather regularly voicing their displeasure at how we were spending this Saturday. And at one point, I'd had enough. I, I couldn't take the complaining anymore. And so as we sat in a parking lot about to drive to the next errand, I turned around and I said, if the next words out of your mouth are not to praise God or encourage someone else in this car, I don't want to hear them. And we drove off in silence. <laughs> and in the midst of that silence, the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, Matt, how many times does that need to be true of your own words? How many times are you speaking words that aren't about praising God, encouraging others, or sharing necessary truth. Don't be that old person that tears others down, that speaks corrupting talk. Instead, we're the, the new person in Christ in our workplace and in our day-to-day -day lives by speaking encouraging words to others, words filled with grace. We're to speak encouraging words. The final way that we live out the new life in Christ in our workplace is this. Be kind. Be kind. Look at the final couple of verses. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There is a lot here, but I would like to sum it up with this two-word phrase that the Apostle Paul uses, be kind. All of those things in the first verse are the opposite of kindness, bitterness, lashing out, slandering, clamoring, malice. These are all anti-kindness. And after saying, don't be all of these things of the world, don't be all of these things of the old self, instead, be the new self, and the new self in Christ is one of kindness in all that we do. It's one of the fruit that God's Spirit is growing us in if we know Him, so that if I know Christ and I'm this kind at age 20, at age 40, I should be this kind because God's Spirit has been at work in my life growing that fruit. And by age 80, I should be this kind because God's Spirit is at work growing kindness in us. That's the fruit that He produces in us. Kindness is such an important part of living out the new life in Christ tender-hearted, forgiving others. I have a conversation that I had with my daughter when she was in the sixth grade that is forever burned in my memory because she started the conversation with these words. She said to me, Dad, 
I am never going to be exceptional at anything. I, I didn't know where this talk of exceptional was coming from at this point. I said, sweetie, what, what are you talking about? And she began to list people that she thought were exceptional at things, people who were great at things. She talked about people that she knew in her friend group who were great at sports, who were exceptional at getting good grades, who, who were first chair in the orchestra. And she said to me, Dad, I'm just never going to be exceptional like that. Now, I got to tell you, I disagreed with her six, sixth grade assessment of herself. And I suppose at this point, I could have argued with her and told her how great she was going to be at these things. But instead, in an all too rare moment of inspiration from the Holy Spirit, I said to her, sweetie, you are exceptional. I live with you day in and day out. And you are absolutely exceptional at being kind. I, I don't know anyone else who is as kind as you are day in and day out. Right? A sixth grade girl who's kind, that is a rare animal. <laughs> who's kind despite the fact that she's getting raised by me. Right? What, what tremendous kindness she showed in her life in the sixth grade and she shows in her life today. And there is nothing more important. Uh, one day she's going to stand before her maker and her judge. And at that moment as she stands there, in her mind and her heart, what is going to be important isn't how many promotions she got at work. What's going to be important isn't what kind of grades she got in the ninth grade. What's going to be important isn't how high she jumped in some sport. What's going to be important that moment as she stands before her maker and her judge is how did I take the kindness of Jesus Christ and spread it through my life to others? We live in a world that takes priorities and gets them all mixed up and turned around. And things like grades, things like sports, things like promotions, these things are so unimportant when compared to whether or not we are showing the love and the kindness and the grace of Jesus to others. This is God's call in our life. The new life in Jesus is a life of kindness. We're to be those people at work that when we drive up, other people are excited that they see our car in the parking lot because they recognize that's the person that treats me with kindness. That, that's the person who's tender-hearted towards me. I, I, I love it when they're around. They're so kind. That's to be us as the followers of Jesus, the people of kindness. What does it look like to live the new life in our workplace, to be like Christ in our workplace? Right? Ephesians 4, 25 through 32 says it's about being honest. Resolving anger appropriately. Working hard and not stealing from our employers. Speaking encouraging words and not tearing down. And being kind to other people. I, I want to encourage you before you leave today to write these things down. To take out your phones and take a picture of them if that's easier for you. And then to take that image, to take those things and put it next to where you work the most. Maybe that's at your desk, at your job. 
Maybe it's in your car because that's what you work out of. Maybe it's at home where you prepare homeschool lessons. Whatever it looks like, take this list and put it next to wherever you work the most because these things are what a successful work day looks like in the eyes of Jesus. What does it look like if today was a success at my work? I can look at these five things and say, the character of Christ was built into me today at work. This is a good day. These are Jesus' priorities for my work. And so keep them close by. Now, friends, if you're anything like me, as you look at these things that Jesus calls us to in new life in him, you have noted some sort of failure in your own life in one or more of these areas. And I'm confident I'm not the only one who looks at these areas and notes some sort of failure from this last Tuesday from three weeks ago, in an ongoing way that you're struggling to overcome, right? And as we look at that, and as we experience a sense of failure in ourselves, we recognize our desperate need for the things we're about to celebrate at the Lord's table. That we are saved not because we've been good enough at doing these five things or any other set of things, but that we've been saved despite the fact that we haven't been good enough. But Jesus was good enough in our place. And he died the death that we deserved as our substitute so that we can be saved and the righteousness of Christ can be applied to us so that the Spirit of God can come and dwell in us and begin the growth that we need in these areas and so many others. I want to invite you right now as we prepare to go to the table to just bow your heads with me And let's spend a few minutes in confession of our sin before the Lord.